welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today I have my longtime friend Margie Sanderson on the podcast. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it's because her brother, Matt Sanderson, was previously on the podcast talking about Not Back to School Camp. We all know each other through Not Back to School Camp. And today we are talking about children's rights or youth rights. They go by different names. And it's a big, interesting, and, and difficult, confusing topic. It's one that I don't know much about. And so I said, hey, Margie, you know a lot about this, and you're also involved in the world of self-directed learning. Let's talk about these two things and how they overlap. And she said, yes. So without further ado, my guest today is Margie Sanderson. Margie, great to have Hi. you here. Yeah, we're doing it. It took me so long to get you on the podcast. Yeah. Been like over a year in the making. <laughs> right. And uh, we know each other through Not Back to School Camp. I was uh, an advisor there when you were a camper mm-hmm. there. Uh, were you ever in my advisee group? I don't think so as a I camper. I don't think I so. I can't either. quite remember, but we I don't think so. We would have remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how old are you now? I'm 24. And you're calling me from British Columbia? Yep, from Vancouver. Excellent. And we have worked together before. We should just put this on the table here at Not Back to School Camp. Also, you helped me run Launchpad, which is Mm -hmm. this online course through Unschool Adventures. And we collaborated on a a super secret gathering for adult self-directed learners that involved placebos and guacamole. Yep. Very secret. (laughs) That's all we can say about that. Yeah. Uh, Great. And today we're going to be talking about children's rights, which is something I... I know almost nothing about, and mm-hmm. and I feel like I should. And so this episode is mostly me trying to educate myself on on this topic. And so, can you start by telling me like how you got into this this whole field in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think really my parents got me into this. Um, they were both interested in social justice, and as a kid, they really instilled the idea that people have the power to fight injustice and the things that stop people from doing that are that we feel isolated, we feel incompetent and we feel powerless. And those are all things that we tell our kids um, in lots of ways, both explicit and implicit. But so my parents taught me basically not to believe that about myself and not to believe that because I'm young, I don't know things or I can't contribute to the world. And I think that really kind of laid the groundwork for my interest in youth rights. Okay. So when did this turn into something more more serious for you? Because you are a board member of NIRA, the National Youth Rights Association. So uh, what was the bridge between that that foundation, uh, thanks to your family, and and where you are now? Um, Well, I think in high school, I started, maybe really in middle school, I started getting very frustrated with the conventional school system. Um, and I ended up leaving and doing self-directed education for the last three years of high school. I went to a democratic school and that experience of both learning to trust myself and seeing a bunch of other young people being trusted to direct their lives and make decisions about themselves, uh, I think really pushed forward to me how important this work is and how big of a difference it can make in young people's lives. So I was working after high school at a Sudbury school in Philadelphia, the Philly Free School. They're awesome. Um, and I think kind of in 2016, um, 
especially with the political climate in the U.S., I felt myself wanting to see if I could make an impact on an even larger scale, I guess. And so I joined the board at NIRA, which is the National Youth Rights Association. And since then, I've just been self-educating and trying to spread the message of youth rights in other platforms, including education, but also looking at other kinds of rights like civil and political rights. Okay. So the word rights, uh, I mean, I said children's rights, you said youth rights. Uh, I feel like other people use different words to, to describe this. And so like, what are youth rights or children's rights in the first place? Just like the one line definition for people who have never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. So the one line definition I would say is children's rights are human rights. And the the children's rights or youth rights movement is really one that's fighting for the realization of young people's human rights. And these two different terms like youth rights and children's rights, they're kind of used to differentiate between organizations that focus on child protection and children's rights to be protected um, and organizations that focus more on young people's rights uh, to be politically involved, to be civically involved, um, which is a bit of a different angle than child protection. Okay. So like, what's a classic example of, of a failure of child protection where, where a child's rights are, are not being respected? You know, what, what, where is that happening in the world right now? So, okay, a classic example, I think, of where we're failing to protect children um, is like children don't have access to healthcare and maybe they don't have access to a home or a stable home environment. Um, those are sort of social rights issues for young people that there's often um, pretty significant political support for. Those are kind of the rights that mm. you see people rally for, mm-hmm. especially for kids. Um, and then the rights that you see people kind of get the opposite reaction to where they especially oppose them for kids are things like freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, like freedom of movement. You know, young people should have a right in our country to walk around on their own. And that's something that's being questioned and violated in many states. So would that be like a a curfew law or a law that if a kid is out, they have to be with uh, an adult or guardian? Yeah, both. And uh, would that also apply to, uh, well, let me go back for a second. So child abuse, if a a kid is being hit by their parents in in the home, that that would be a failure of of protecting a a child's rights from the protection uh, side of things, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I can see what you mean when you say everyone likes to get behind the, the first version of children's rights, which is, you know, children are people, we shouldn't, you know, subject them to abuse, we should uh, protect them from unnecessary hardship, uh, you know, housing, food, healthcare, etc. I mean, which of these two domains are you personally more interested in the the protection side of things or the the granting? I'm not sure how to how to describe it, like letting young people engage in the world in the same way that adults do. That's definitely the side of it that I'm more focused on, not mm. because I think um, the not other side you, you, you is unimportant. because you hate protecting children? Um, exactly. No, I just think 
you know, that side has greater political support already. Um, and so this, the side that I'm talking about, sometimes it's talked about as children's rights to participation. Um, sort of, there's, there's this document called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and that breaks down children's rights into kind of three different domains, which can be talked about as um, provision, protection, and participation. So we have things that we need to provide to children. We have things we need to protect children from, and children have to have a right to participate in society. Um, for me, I think those can be a bit better expressed as um, kind of the more commonly talked about rights for adults, which are civil, political, and social rights. Um, I just think participation is a bit of a watered down version of saying political or civil rights. Okay, this is super helpful. Um, okay, so the, the participation rights, those are the ones that people are, are kind of least knowledgeable about or generally least interested in, in granting to young people. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, so let's just focus on those rights for a second, because I think a lot of people can easily get behind the protection and provision ones, as you said already. And so mm -hmm. the participation rights, uh, like when, when did this start becoming a publicly discussed issue? When did people even start thinking that this is something that could, could be considered a rights issue? Can you take us down, you know, a, a tour of history here? Yes. <laughs> Brief tour of history. Um, so essentially, um, after World War II, the, the United Nations was formed and they put together the Universal Declaration on Human Rights um, that was adopted in 1948. Um, and I think it was essentially in the couple decades following that, that people started thinking about and talking about children as independent rights bearers and not just as future adults with mm. future rights. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child was adopted in 1989, and then most countries in the world have ratified it uh, in the decades following that. And the UNCRC does outline some participation rights for young people. It doesn't go as far as I would like to see us go, but it does sort of bring that conversation onto a global scale. Okay, so 89 was when this was really signed into any form of law. Yep. Yeah. But but it's the UN. They don't have, I mean, how much authority do they really have to enforce this kind of stuff? Uh, minimal. I mean, it depends on the country. Some countries are set up such that when they sign a UN treaty, they agree to make those things um, part of their local law immediately. Mm -hmm. But most countries are set up such that they still need to pass national and local legislation to match the treaty. Okay. Um, can you explain some more of these participation rights? You said freedom of uh, religion, the, the right to assembly, the right to free movement. I mean, what else is on this list? The right to vote is a major issue. Hmm. Okay. What about, I'm sure there's a, a controversy around the, the right to like choose your sexual partners. Is that on this list too? It sometimes is. I think that's a difficult question. So it sometimes gets talked about, but I think for now it's not a major priority. Mm -hmm. 
And what about contracts, like the ability to, I don't know, if you're 16 years old and you want to have your own apartment so you can move out mm-hmm. of your house, um, is is that how you would generalize that? Like the, the ability to sign Yeah, it's your ability to like participate in society. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that would make it a lot easier for parents to threaten to kick their kids out of the house, right? <laughs> then they could actually go get their own apartment and get their own job. It won't. (laughs) (laughs) So where does this run up against the protection side of things? I'm specifically thinking about child labor now. Mm -hmm. Well, so what you just said about it making it easier for parents to maybe threaten to kick their kids out, I think that does kind of speak to one of the issues here, which is trying to balance children's competency and children's vulnerability. And that young people are set up to be um, vulnerable in our society. And so it is important that we have protections in place for them. Well, where do you see this this conflict crop up the most in, in the world that you're in about whether you should uh, you know, protect the child or whether you should empower them? Like, where are, where are people most conflicted? I mean, I think child labor is a great example of this um, right now. There are, there's many different, you know, working ages in different states in the U.S. And there's a lot of conflict about the balance of wanting to protect young people from being forced into labor or, you know, not getting the opportunity to uh, participate in full-time education. Um, But there's also a lot of research that shows that young people having the ability to participate meaningfully in society through work is super beneficial, you know, and that just makes sense. We know that people want to contribute to the world and they want to be part of society and we can't just exclude young people for 18, 20, 25 years of their lives and then expect them to just jump in and be ready to be part of things. Uh, Yeah, there's so many overlaps here with the education issue, which we'll come to shortly, but Mm -hmm. uh, let's dwell on child labor. So, you know, kids have worked for their families for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, you know, on farms or in small businesses. And so, like, how would you think about the situation of, like, an 11-year-old who really wants to work for whatever, her her family business? Let's say it's not, like, you know, farm work in this case, but, I don't know, you know, producing something at home. And it's it's not dangerous, threatening labor, um, but it's it's not going to school either. Um you know, how would a child rights activist talk about this kid? I mean, I can't say how any activist would, but I can say how I would think about it. And (laughs) good, (laughs) you know, I guess in my opinion, I think that young people should have the right to make these kinds of decisions for themselves. And that said, I do think the way we're set up right now, parents have a lot of power over young people. And so, there needs to be some sort of system in place that uh, either changes that power dynamic or maybe evaluates um, the decision that an individual is making um, because I think it's okay if a child wants to do that for themselves, but I don't think it's okay for an adult to force them. Yeah, this is super interesting and and kind of messy because – if, mm-hmm. if you have a parent trying to force a kid to stay at home and work in the family business, first of all, you know, how can you even assess, you know, to what degree this kid is being forced 
or not forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, homeschooling laws, for example, have it, it, there's almost no oversight, and so yeah. you could that could be happening. There could be a form of child labor exploitation happening un- under the guise of homeschooling. Um, oh my gosh! Do you th- I should probably outlaw homeschooling. I'm, I'm now realizing this, Margie. I'm going to complete. So, I mean, I think that another important piece of this kind of thing is just to ensure that young people are the ones working on the laws that are meant to protect them. Okay, so it doesn't make sense to have a group of adults coming together and deciding what young people need or what will be helpful to them or what will ensure that they're not being manipulated without consulting them and without having them drive that process. I'm sure a lot of people's heads will now jump to this you know, extreme situation of, well, what about really, really young kids? You know, we're, mm-hmm. we consult a two-year-old on their, their civil rights and it's not going to be much of a conversation. And so uh, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Like how, how does like a child's brain development and capacity for, you know, complex reasoning, speech, et cetera, you know, how does that overlap with what you just proposed that kids should be um, agents of, of, you know, d- determining what their, what their rights are? Well, this is why I think multi-generational processes are important. So first of all, kids, that's a super broad term that includes people that are zero. It includes people that are 18. Sometimes it includes people that are 20, 25, you know, depending on who you ask. Um, And so I think that if we put those people together, we get the benefits of older people and younger people. And I think that, you know, I don't, believe that the valuable role of adult mentorship should just be removed from from children's lives. I think we have things to learn from people that are older than us, um, but I just think young people need to be involved as well. So I imagine a way we could directly involve them is by lowering the voting age. Uh, Exactly. And so at what point, I'm going to ask that same question again, but in the context of voting, you know, at how mm-hmm. young could a child be and vote? And, and you, Margie, would feel confident that all these child voters out there are not just empty shills for their parents' wishes. You know, the parents aren't saying, hey, we'll, we'll give you 50 bucks tomorrow if you, you know, vote for our, our candidate today, uh, mm-hmm. I, which I guess could happen with any adult as, now that I'm thinking about it. But, um, you know, how young would you be comfortable seeing the voting age go? You know, I think I'd kind of like to flip that question um, and say, you know, I spend a lot of time defending why we should lower the voting age. And I think a better question is, why do we think that the Constitution does not say voting is a right for every citizen? Well, Margie, before the show, we talked about not getting deep into the law, legal (laughs) side of things here. So, yeah, uh, (laughs) uh, I just think, you know, it's like, this is something that's outlined in the Constitution. It's not my idea. Mm. It's our country's founding document says voting is a right for citizens. So people that feel that voting isn't a right for every citizen, I feel should have to make that case. Okay. If we follow that logic, then can a two-year-old vote? Yes. And uh, what about a six-month-year-old? You see where I'm going with this. I do see where you're going with this. And I think that you know, these are systems that we don't currently have in place. We don't have a way to support this. And it, it wouldn't make sense in our current setup. 
but that doesn't mean that it could never happen or it couldn't be thought about. Well, certainly not. But this seems like a challenge for the youth rights movement to not be able to give like, okay, so first of all, let me admit, 18 is completely arbitrary, right? It's just Mm -hmm. something we've all agreed upon. Uh, And so, I mean, it would be nice for a skeptic to hear like a a lowest bound on the voting age or on the age of contract or on the the age of of, majority assembly, et cetera. Um, and have have a reason behind that, because at some point, I think, you know, when we're talking about infants, it, it really just doesn't make sense anymore. And so I, I'm playing the skeptic's position here, Margie, you know, right. how can you make me feel better about getting behind this, the, the youth rights movement? I mean, I just think I'm not willing to give a lowest bound on the voting age until we see an amendment to the Constitution, if that's the case. Like, you know, I think that the Constitution outlines very clearly that voting is a right. Okay, but would that amendment include a provision that says people of all ages are allowed to vote? No, I'm sorry. I mean an amendment that specifies that people of all ages aren't allowed to vote because I feel that the Constitution presently <laughs> says they are. Oh my gosh. We're going in the totally opposite direction. I didn't expect this. So you want <laughs> to see are. a provision to the... You would be interested in seeing uh, an amendment to the Constitution that says not all citizens are automatically entitled to vote. So no, this is not something that I would be interested in okay, seeing. Okay. Sorry, I'm making myself <laughs> a little unclear. No, no, it's me too. I'm just saying like... I think that I shouldn't have to give a lowest bound voting age. Mm-hmm. Like the constitution says everyone can vote. This makes me think of a book I read a few years ago, The Case Against Adolescence by Robert Epstein. And mm-hmm. he was making the case that that for teenagers today, they have so few rights and freedoms. And sometimes they have fewer rights and freedoms than people who are in jail or in the military. And uh, he said, pretty much, we should give young people the ability to do things like sign contracts or to vote based upon competency tests. Take mm-hmm. a test that shows that you are, you know, whatever, capable of you know, being a conscientious voter. You're capable of driving a car. We already have that. Everyone loves the fact that there's, you know, driver's licenses and you need tests. Well, we have a competency test for driving a car, but we also have an age limit. That's true. Good, good distinction. So what do you think of this idea that, uh, you know, pretty much everything should be a test? Well, I think that competency tests historically have had a lot of issues and have been used to say that we're including everyone, but to still systemically exclude people. Um, So I'd be very skeptical about a competency test for voting. Can you give me an example of, of what you just described? Well, like literacy tests for voting. Thank you. And can you just spell that out for for those of us unfamiliar? Yeah. Well, those have been used in our country to say that everyone is enfranchised, but to leave certain people still disenfranchised because the test has been, you know, someone has to create the test and it can be created to favor them. So this is kind of like the SAT, right? It's theoretically an equal assessment tool, but in many ways it can be gamed and specially prepared for, and it can be used to exclude certain groups of people from from accessing higher education. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. So- and I think with just with voting quickly, yeah. like there's this stuff about what's the lowest possible voting age. How do we include infants in voting? Um, that's very philosophical right now. And so I like to discuss it. I like to think about it. Um, but I do just want to point out that there is also legislation that is very real and practical right now, and that's to lower the voting age to 16. And I definitely support that happening. Okay, so you see that as a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Okay. And do you think the opposition to that is mostly partisan opposition because young people tend to vote more on the left? I don't think so. Oh, interesting. Um, Tell me why. Well, it's maybe true that young people tend to vote more on the left, but it's also true that conservative people tend to have more children. Um, So I don't know that there would be a very clear partisan benefit. And I know that there are many, many, many people from all sides of the political spectrum that oppose lowering the voting age. And I think that... um, I think people see it maybe as something to protect children. People don't want young people to be thinking about these issues or feeling this hopelessness or despair that maybe a lot of people are feeling about politics right now. I think the thing that misses, though, is that people feel that hopelessness and despair, and it's just even worse if you don't have a vote. Cool. Wow. I feel like we could do a whole episode just discussing that. But uh, I'm going to ask you one more question, then let's move on to the the education side of things. So what are the best criticisms that you've heard of children's rights? Like, how do you think the ideas might be weak or inconsistent? I'm asking you to play devil's advocate here. I think that one inconsistency or struggle is thinking about the ways that children are vulnerable and how do we account for their vulnerability Um, as we also move forward for their liberation. So an example of this is how most young people live at home and they depend on their parents for food, for shelter, for advice, for leadership and guidance um, in being alive. And that potentially makes them uh, very manipulable by their parents. That is not a word. Oh, sure it is. We know what you mean. Okay. Um, Very easy to manipulate. Um, You know, and I think that this isn't because young people are inherently uh, less clever or less smart than adults. It's because we have a system right now that sets them up to depend really strongly on on an adult. And so, of course, they, um, they need to rely on that person. But so when we think about something like suffrage for young people, how do we account for that dependency on an adult when we're thinking about their vote? I think that that is a a valid and interesting criticism to think about. Okay. Well, I'd love to talk more about this because I find it fascinating, but even more fascinating, I think, is the overlap between this children's rights movement and the world of education and alternative education. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that there's more and more people discussing uh, education in these terms. So for example, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education you know, describes itself as a children's rights movement. And so, you know, Margie, you are one of the few people who has your, your you know, 
hands in, in both of these honeypots. And so this is why I wanted to have you on here. Like, what do you think it means for an organization that's promoting free schools, unschooling, uh, you know, all sorts of forms of education where kids get more respect and autonomy and choice? Um, you know, what does that mean to say this is a children's rights movement? So, you know, I don't think that self-directed education necessarily is a children's rights movement, but I think that it can be. Hmm. Go on. So I think for many people, self-directed learning is, is motivated from a trust and respect for young people. And that is a radical departure from how most of our society thinks about children. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it is, it is thinking about youth rights. It's thinking about young people as autonomous human beings who have brains, who have the ability to think about themselves and understand information and assess things and work out problems and, you know, all this stuff that we talk about in self-directed learning. Um, and so I think if you're a young person growing up that way, you know, maybe you're getting at least a little bit less of this message that you're incompetent and you're powerless just because you're young. And I think that is a super powerful act um, to raise someone that way or to be raised that way and to let yourself believe that. Um, that said, I think some people are involved in self-directed education because it's maybe something that they as an adult think is important for their child, but it's, I think, not necessarily a conversation everyone is having with their child. Um, oh, that's and, fascinating. Yeah. I think that like, you know, you don't have to be all on board for your child to sign up for conventional school. You know, you can give your opinions about it, but I think that it misses the point to, coerce someone into like quote-unquote non-coercive education yeah that's that doesn't make any sense at all and i have seen this and heard about it a few times where you know parents which in my experience is mostly mothers uh you know get this idea that i'm going to unschool my kid or i'm going to send my kid to this radical free school and that's a highly aligned for the parents values or you know maybe the parent had a, a bad experience themselves in school when they were younger and they said, I'll never let my kid experience anything like this. And so it's, you know, it's unschooling or nothing uh, growing up. And that, uh, you know, every once in a while I've seen teenagers specifically who are really desperate to, you know, usually they just want to have more friends, but they, they want to be more part of the world and their parents are, 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 forcibly homeschooling or, or unschooling them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is a contradiction. And I, I imagine it, it probably happens more often with the homeschooling, more conventional homeschooling world than it does in the, the unschooling world. Do you think that's right? I think that's right. And I think, I mean, it happens most often in the conventional schooling world. Sure, of course. I think this is fresh on my mind because I recently read uh, Educated by Tara Westover. Mm -hmm which is this gripping tale of a you know, family growing up in rural Idaho and they are homeschooling, but it's kind of the worst version of homeschooling uh, in my opinion. And, and the kid has no friends, you know, she's taught nothing about the world. There's no exposure to anything. She, you know, has to do heavy labor in her dad's 
uh, junkyard and you know the kids are getting injured they don't go to the hospitals and that seems like you know a, a perfect situation of of a, ch- a child not having a right to you know to be protected uh, you know i guess they fed them so they were provided for in a basic way but they weren't allowed to go out and engage with the world and so th- this seems like really tricky territory to talk about kind of free ed- free in the sense of liberatory education uh, and children's rights when when children's rights encompasses so many different things as you pointed out well in our education system ultimately in this country it still is saying that the parent is the one who gets to decide how their child is educated and we have a lot of freedom for parents to pick many many different options you know and homeschooling is legal and you can unschool in most states and There's many options, but we don't have a framework where a child can say, this is how I want to be educated. Yeah. Um, I mean, what would that look like, Margie, if if such a framework did exist? Or or is that a hard question to answer? Because there's so many different pieces that would have to be involved to make something like that possible. Yeah. I mean, there are many different pieces that would need to be involved, but I do think even just the very basic idea of like, you know, a young person should be able to enroll themselves in school without an adult involved. Does that mean that's pretty simple? They should be able to unenroll themselves in school also without an adult involved. I believe so. Yeah. Oh man, Margie, the stuff you're calling for is just gonna, just gonna cause riots. It's like, we shouldn't (laughs) (laughs) let kids unenroll themselves from school. Uh, Yeah. And you know, I think all these things are like, it's very hard to imagine legal changes like, uh-huh. you know, allowing kids to unenroll themselves from school without an adult's permission, without cultural changes as well. Okay. Yeah. So if yeah. we just passed that tomorrow, like, I don't think it would go well. So I think, you know, we need a cultural shift before a specific legal change, like saying young people can unenroll themselves from school without an adult um, is going to work well. Young people need to play a different role in society. They need to be less dependent on and vulnerable to manipulation by adults. And they need to be more respected and more involved in in the rest of the world before simply making a change in the law is going to be beneficial, I think. So do you see... Uh, self-directed learning, alternative education, et cetera, as, as the best way to work towards that goal in society right now? Is, is that why you stay in this field? I think it's one of the best ways. Okay. I think that, you know, the compulsory education system for a lot of young people is like, it's going in and facing oppression every single day, facing, you know, a big message that like you need to sit down, shut up and listen to adults every single day. And so removing people from that allows, I think, people to think better about themselves and to better understand that they can be smart, that they can be a you know valuable contributor to society. That said, I think that's not the message everyone gets in school. That's not the experience everyone has. And so you know, I think that conventional school can work well for some people. Interesting. 
What would a successful future look like in terms of, of youth rights activism? Like what are the people that you work with and speak with, what are they aiming for? Um, let's, let's go beyond the you know, reduction of the voting age to 16. Um, mm-hmm. What would constitute success within your lifetime? So I have, you know, some legal goals that are near and dear to me. Um, things like like lowering the voting age, like we talked about, and also things like putting an end to corporal punishment, um, seeing a shift in the school system such that young people are part of the governance and the administration of all schools. I think that would be amazing. Um, I think there needs to be a cultural shift in how we talk about and think about young people. Right now, you know, it's it's totally acceptable to talk about kids in a way that's really disparaging and, and rude. And I think that seeing a shift in my lifetime where, you know, it's no longer acceptable to just say, I hate kids would be amazing. I also noticed that you don't use the word kids very much. You seem to talk about people and young people and even saying people aged six months. And, and mm-hmm. is that an intentional choice? Yeah, that is an intentional choice. I just think, you know, the terms kids and children sometimes, not always, but sometimes can serve to sort of dehumanize young people or separate them from us adult humans. What about in education specifically? I mean, are are you a fan of the idea of doing away with compulsory education laws? I'm not sure how I feel about compulsory education laws. I think that There's value to everyone coming together and getting some information that is the same and that we can rely on sort of everyone having access to and everyone receiving. That said, I definitely don't think it needs to be 12 years long. Okay. I mean, that sounds like you're also skeptical about the value of homeschooling laws because that prevents people you know, from being forced to come together and learn something in common. And it it allows for the possibility of anything, really. Yeah, it's a really thorny topic. I'm not, I don't have an answer to the best way to fix our education system. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's valuable that people can do their own thing and that it can be individualized. I also think that I mean, yeah, like I said before, there's value in everyone learning the same thing. So, you know, in a totally reimagined system, maybe there's, you know, of course, there's an option to have public education for your whole life. I think education is a right and should be accessible. But, you know, maybe there's two years of compulsory education where everyone comes together. And maybe that time isn't focused on learning content so much as examining a global issue and trying to come up with a solution. Okay. So, well, but, but then would you be able to opt out of that two year period? I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not surprised <laughs> you don't have all the answers, Margie. I, I don't need mm-hmm. No one does. Um, okay. Uh, if somebody is really interested in this discussion, they want to learn more about youth rights, children's rights, et cetera. Where should they go? What, what are your favorite recommendations? Um, well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the Naira website. It's youthrights.org. Um, and we have a lot of information compiled there. That's sort of 
the first place online I remember seeing like, oh, there's a study about this. And, you know, just seeing sort of some of the evidence for a lot of the claims that I've uh, made in this podcast. And then another website I wanted to mention is the Child Rights International Network. Their website is just crin.org. And they also cover a lot of different issues and have, you know, research papers and their uh, writings and reports to the UN and legal briefs and all kinds of super detailed evidence there. And I feel like we've left out one very important thing to talk uh, about, which is not... You can contact me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say not back to school camp, but you too, Margie. Yeah, because oh. you're, you're open to people <laughs> directly contacting you if they want to, to talk more about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my email address is msanderson at youthrights.org, and I'd be happy to talk with anyone. Or you can just go to not back to school go camp, to not back to school camp. and meet Margie and hang out with her, especially if you're Very a teenager. True. More difficult if you're an adult, but... Uh, not not back to school camp is an ageist institution. We we don't allow adults to enroll, <laughs> and uh, and we're both going to be there in the organ session this year. And mm-hmm. that that session, you're, you're closer to the administrative side of things. That session is <laughs> full, right? That's correct. It's full with a pretty long waiting list. Oh my gosh, bursting at the seams. Yeah, but we still have space at, in Vermont, and I will be there too. So oh you can come there. There we go. All right. I'm glad we finally made this happen, Margie. Thanks for taking the time. Me too. Yeah, thanks for having me, Blake.